It's good to have everybody here this morning. It's an honor to open up God's word. You know, every preacher knows that you come to this moment to preach God's word, but God has been opening up his word to you for weeks, marinating on the passage that you're supposed to bring as a vessel and an instrument. And the, the, the passage that we've come to in the narrative as we've been walking through Luke with various preachers and various people bringing the message is a collective message about Jesus Christ. And what's so powerful about going through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is that you can get new visions, be re- reminded of new visions of who Jesus is. And we so often need that, right? We so often Uh, look at ourselves in the mirror, but what happens when we look in the Gospels and the Word of God, and specifically in the Gospels, is we see Jesus. That's who's held up to us. And how do we see him? What, What paintbrushes paint Jesus and who he is? Well, it's his words. It's his interactions with people. And so as we are walking through a narrative, we've been seeing these different metaphors that describe Jesus, Right? David said last week, he was going through a passage, it ended on the passage in Luke 11 that talked about Jesus being the light, also talked about Jesus being the good portion. We just sang that, right? My heart, my flesh may fail, but you are my portion. Who are we talking about? Without saying his name, our hearts are saying, Jesus, you are my portion, right? So there's a lot of metaphors, there's a lot of angles, there's a lot of facets that paint the beauty of Jesus, If Jesus is a diamond, then as you go through the gospel, each little story, each little nugget, each little part of the narrative says, this is who I am. Pay attention, because this is who I am. And so I will say, though, in the parts that we are now entering into, there's some hard parts there. How many of you all know that Jesus says some hard things? Any of us? So if you're in the word of God, he says some hard things. But those hard things are out of love. Those hard things aren't to to give you a trigger to point at someone else. They're to give you a finger to point back to yourself and weigh your heart. Put your heart on the scale and see where it weighs against Jesus and, and the things that he's saying. Where do I weigh as a preacher, as a son, as a disciple of Christ? Where do I weigh? So what we read right now weighs me just as much as it weighs you. That's what Jesus does. We all come as equals before Jesus. And so whether it's Pharisees or prostitutes, whether it's the ignorant crowds that just wanted a sign or just wanted bread, or it was the committed disciples, he's interacting with them all. And so this morning, he knows who you are. He knows who I am. He knows our weeks, and he weighs us, and he interacts with us. Through his living word. That's just how it works. So there's going to be encouragement. I guarantee there's going to be encouragement. But uh, Pastor Bill gave me a large swath of scripture. So we're going to get to that encouragement. But I will say, let the heavy things weigh on you. Because when you allow yourself to be weighed and even broken and even exposed, how beautiful is the regenerating healing hand of Jesus Christ in our life. Amen? And we know it. Maybe some of you all here today don't know it. Maybe you know it today. Jesus gives you hard things to weigh. 
against your heart, not your skin, not your clothes, not your appearance, not your background, your heart. But he never leaves you broken if you would receive his gift of healing and life. And we're going to get to that. So the weighty stuff we read today, I'm going to ask you to do two things. Don't think about other people. That's going to pop in your head. That often happens with the hard sayings, right? We often are like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, the Pharisees, and we start pointing out. Just turn the finger back around and let it weigh on you. I had to do that this week. I changed up like my whole sermon midweek, or at least the thought pattern of my sermon, because Jesus, through his spirit, was like, come on, Estelle, stop thinking about society and culture. That's what the world does. Points fingers, right? A tragedy happens. Let's nitpick it. Let's point fingers. We get that. You got to analyze things. You got to look for problems. But who's weighing the heart in our culture? The church, all its horrific, horrible problems, the things that have come out the last week with, you know, this conference and that conference and this situation, yes, all need to be weighed on the scales. And God is a judge and he will. But God never is satisfied with us pointing fingers outward. That's what the Pharisees did. His word tells us you got to look inside because that's where he's looking at. In 1 Samuel Man looks at the appearance of the outward things, right? What does God do? The Lord looks at the heart. So God, would you look at our heart this morning? The title is, let's get to the heart of the issue, what do we treasure? Let's get to the heart of the issue, what do we treasure? You know, an example for me, some of the most powerful sermons, some of the most powerful times interacting in my walk with Christ has been with people who have sat me down in the myriad of issues that I've had in behavior or thought patterns or decisions, and they've said something simple to me. They've said, how's your heart? Okay, I I get all these things that are happening, the rebelliousness or the bad decisions, but how's your heart? My parents were the main people that did that to me. They said, how's your heart? When I was a rebellious teenager, how's your heart? When I was having my issues, how's your heart? Because all those things were symptoms that came from the roots that were inside of me that were growing in my heart. And that's what discipled me in Christ. That's what discipled me in how to try to walk to be an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, it starts at salvation, but it never stops. That's a key question. How's your heart? And what are you treasuring? Because if your treasure is off, your heart is off, then everything else, your mouth, your attitude, all of that will be off. Your relationships, all of that will be off, right? Have you ever had that said to you? How's your heart? What's your reaction typically? Don't go there. Right? Right? That's usually reaction is defensiveness. And yet that's usually the best thing, the most loving thing that someone can say to you. How's your heart? Now, you might think about just all negative things, but I'm talking about positive things too. You had a great success. You won a trophy. You graduated. How's your heart? Is pride taking over? So I'm not just talking about when we're rebellious or we're stuck in sin. I'm talking about all the time. This is, this is, a, this is a, a question that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the community of faith is always asking us. How is your heart? Because remember, that lines up with God's will, and God's will is always to look at the heart. Always to look at the heart. 
So what, what emotion is behind a question like that? Well, I would say it's urgent care, right? We see urgent cares all over the place, right? You go there in an emergency, right? So it's like an emergency question. I know you're struggling. How's your heart? I know you're making any decisions. How's your heart? I know you're running away. You're not picking up my calls. Cool. Could I just ask you, how's your heart, right? So there's urgent care and urgent love behind that question. Now, before we dive into the passage today, like I said, it's, it's, it's about three parts. I think uh, David used the word scenes. It's kind of like that, that we're going to dive in Luke 11 and 12. So you can turn open to that or you can flip over to it on the Bible app or wherever you're at. So it's Luke 11 and 12. Have it ready. We're going to do a, a flyover of it, like a 30K foot view. I mean, there's probably 10 sermons, 20 sermons, I don't know, in those portions. But the way that I was reading it, this week, and the way I want to frame it to us is all within the context of this question. How is your heart? Where is your heart? What are the things in your heart? Okay? And there's kind of a collective thought or thread that I think leads to our key pointed verse, which is Luke 12, 34. And it's a very, it's one that's very well known to us, right? For where the what? Treasure of your what? For where your treasure is there, your heart is also, right? Um, So we're going to get to that point. Are you guys at Luke 11 and 12? All right, cool. So just have it ready. Now, before we do that, though, I I just want to make a little bit of a philosophical claim, maybe, or, or something I've observed. I think especially since the last election. You're like, don't take it there. Okay. There is so much conflict in the world. This is not a new thing, but it's it's. On all digital media, it's, it's, it's ramped up. We all feel it, right? The conflict. I mean, you could take ethnic, social conflict, economic conflict. Uh, you name it, the conflict is there, right? And so we feel it. And so often I see or I observe that we're always looking at the outside symptoms, right? And we're arguing about the outside symptoms. And those are very serious. What, I'm, uh, that's a whole nother dialogue for another day. But they typically flow from the heart, right? They typically flow from what God says uh, is the wellspring of what makes individuals who they are and then collectively communities who they are, right? And so I want to make a case that in our modern day era, the heart is often our forgotten anatomy. It's often forgotten that we have a treasure room that is a part of the way God made us. Now, that could be the result of the theory of evolution. It could be the result of uh, uh, science theories. It could be the result of uh, modern-day arrogance. We learn more and, uh, you know, it's who we are. It could be the result of materialism. It could just be the result of what we've seen in the Bible all this time is sin blinds us, right? But God has given us anatomy that includes your hearts, that includes my heart. So what is the heart? I remember doing a concert once, and I had the, the heart was said in the chorus over and over and over. And as me and the other MC were repeating this, this um, we were talking about heart transformation. That was the context. I remember there was five young ladies up front. They're like, ah, oh, the heart. Like, they noticed the repetition of the word, the heart. What we were saying is not what they were thinking. So we have to define some things. Heart is not like romantic love. Heart is not just... Uh, you know, a Swedish day card. 
Heart, is, heart has a very different definition from science terms. It's not just a gland. It doesn't just keep your heart pumping. When the Bible talks about heart, it is the most important core of your whole being, now and for eternity. It has connections to when you hear the soul or the spirit. It is, here's another metaphor, it is the treasure room of what makes you who you are. And we're in a society where flags define us, where color defines us, where our background defines us, where our ancestors define us, where our tongue defines us, where our language defines us. And some of those things are great because they're a part of who we are, but they are not our core. Human beings are made in the image of God. And they're given this throne room, this, this incredible thing called the heart. So let me break it down. And now, this is not, I said philosophy. That was the wrong word for it. I'm breaking down what the Bible says, what God says is, his definitions. So one thing to mention as I kind of set this up, because I feel like this sets the frame for what we're going to read. The heart is mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible, And yes, sometimes it's mentioned as an organ, right? Someone gets stabbed in the heart, they bleed out, they die. Something we understand so much. But in our culture, we usually don't talk about the heart in this way, in the biblical way. The physical heart, though, provides a great metaphor for what is talked about in the heart. And I want you to think of it this way. Uh, If I said, man, I'm going to do open heart surgery on myself this afternoon at the house, how would you react? Why no? (laughs) Because I'm probably going to do some damage. The heart is hidden. Who can grab his or her heart? The heart is center. The heart is living. The heart pumps the lifeblood into our bodies without us even realizing it. The only time we realize it is when something is wrong with the heart, right? That we're like, got to go to the doctor, right? What was that? So the physical, God knows how to communicate. He's a master communicator. So the physical heart provides a perfect metaphor for what the holistic, you could call it the spiritual, but it's more than that because it's the all-encompassing thing that makes us who we are. It's the hiddenness of the heart, the complexity, the centeredness, and the importance of everything that we call who we are in our life. Okay, do we got that? So our anatomy all flows from the heart, all right? I'm going to say this real bluntly. Bump what the culture says. Listen to what God says about you. And then that w- that's going to open up a good place for him to do heart care for you. Define yourself how the maker defines yourself. Sometimes it's going to line up with what you learn in the world, right? The general truth that God gives us and people know about. Sometimes it's going to go very counter to it, right? You say, why are you coming so hard on this? Well, because as, as we uh, can kind of go, you know, as you kind of diagnose the culture, with all its fads and its words, you can often feel, well, let me ask you this. Can you often feel like the answers don't go far enough? Have you ever felt that? Like you read about a tragedy, you read an article, you're like, okay, they got some points, but they don't go far enough. They don't get to the core of the issue. They don't get to the heart of the issue. I think part of that's because we have ancient versus modern understanding of the heart divorces the hand and the mouth, and the mind from the heart. Like ancient culture, it was in Hebrew culture, specifically biblical culture, where the text that we're studying today comes from, 
It was all inclusive, right? So what you did with your hand, what you did with your mouth comes from inside of you, right? And so nowadays, I often see or diagnose the culture like, okay, he did that, she did that, so let's diagnose that symptom but never talk about where it comes from, right? That's not how the Bible weighs us. That's not how Jesus weighs us. And so in the ancient definition or the biblical definition, there's no divorce between brain, mind, mouth, hand, and soul. There's not even a, 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 a divorce from what you do morally that comes from the heart with the temporary and the eternal. So the heart moves the trigger. The heart moves the mouth. The heart marries and divorces. The heart falls in love or commits adultery. It all flows from the heart. All right? And so we have to first define that the heart. So if we get to our punchline key verse today and we, we, we rattle it off, we have to understand the weight of that. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, what is the heart? This is what the heart is. What else does the heart do? Man, it surges with emotion. It reasons. It desires. It's where we process our thoughts. It moves our actions. Let me pause on there. Is the brain valued in our culture? Absolutely. Right? Who gets paid for brain surgery? I mean, how, how much do people get paid for brain surgery? Multi-millions dollars, right? The brain is important. Academia drives Western culture, right? Uh, that is, that's happened since forever, right? Hundreds of years. If you do your church history, you do your human history, the Western world is driven by knowledge, right? How much knowledge can you put in your brain, right? So the brain is very valued, but see, the Bible values the brain and our thoughts, but it also says it gets processed, those thoughts, that knowledge that you bring in, it gets processed through a moral compass, a moral engine, a moral throne room called the heart. So you can take in knowledge, but it doesn't just stop there. You can know a lot of things, but be unwise. You can know a lot of things and hurt a lot of people. So there's a disconnect. There's a faultiness to modern-day arrogance and how we are defined as human beings. So let's get back to how God defines us. That's my, my plea. That's the Bible's plea. That's the frame for what we're going to read today. The heart remembers, it reflects, it longs for, it harbors, it holds, it gets hurt, but it can heal. It's the deepest part of us. It's connected to our soul and often paired or interchanged with that word soul or spirit, like I mentioned before. Essentially, like I was saying, it's our throne room, our engine, our sanctuary. It holds what we most value. That's why you hear often, man, that, that guy, he died from a broken heart. He was so in sorrow, right? Okay. The part of it, though, is the bad news at the core God teaches that it's fundamentally broken in need of resurrection. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? So you're like, man, if an engine's bad, does a car run well? Right? So there's kind of a bleak picture of the heart. And I'm just going to go through a couple biblical um, Verses that show this. And Jesus says in Mark 7, for from within, out of a person's heart. So put your name there. For from within, out of Esteban's heart, not just his brain, not just his learned behavior, but out of his heart, 
come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these vile things come from inside, come from within. They are what defile you. So Jesus emphasizes over and over. That was from Mark. So the first one's from the Old Testament. The other one's from the New Testament. This week I read so many verses about the heart. And the heart, the Bible, you could tell it, it's the heart of God and the heart of man and woman. Like it's the theme that's over and over and over emphasized. We got to deal with the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And most importantly, the mouth confesses what the heart trusts. Romans 10, 9, and we're going to get to that. The mouth confesses our outward appearance, confesses what our heart trusts, what we value, what we hold most precious. So, a main point, just to set this up and frame what we're about to read Every single person here has a heart, and it is, or it makes you who you are. So the heart of every issue is the heart. And what your heart chiefly or most primarily values, what you treasure, affects who you are. So how's your heart today? How's your heart today? Take a look at uh, the biblical text, and I'm just going to, this is a lot And the Lord may have a nugget in what we're about to read that might specifically talk to you. I have a framework for it. I think that God confronts our hypocritical images in this passage, our Pharisee trying to make ourselves right images. And then I think it goes on to a misguided identity, how we have identities that are misguided. And so we treasure those above Christ. And then lastly, our overvalued inventory of possession and things. Okay, so that's kind of how I framed it. Images, uh, identity or misplaced identity, and inventory. That's kind of how I read these passages. And then you kind of see the capstone or the point at the end for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's how I'm about to read it and just kind of tease out some things. All right? You guys with me? All right, here we go. Luke um, 11 Verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside, inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Yeah, Jesus said that. You fools. Did not he make the outside, did he Sorry, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms or do charity, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mints and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues or in the churches, right? And greetings. In the public places, the marketplaces, but woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So the first thing that we should look at here is he's saying, woe to you, because everything is outside for you, and inside you're dead. All right, let me continue. 
Verse 45, one of the lawyers or experts in religious law, as other uh, translations may put it, these guys knew the law of the Lord, the way you should live, the way you should behave, the way you should think, the way you should treat other people. They were experts. But check this out. One of the lawyers answered him, verse 45, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. So they got defensive, right? And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So you talk about it, but you don't do it. Woe to you, verse 47, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. You build, you construct, you make money off of the tombs that house the people that you killed. Imagine, this is Jesus, the Son of God, saying, I know what you and your fathers did. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God, capital W, capital G, said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, right, way back in the Old Testament, to the blood of Zechariah, right, also in the Old Testament, but later on, whom perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you experts of religious law. Woe to you people who know all about religion, you lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. What is the key of knowledge? Luke knew about this. He was a physician. Luke knows about the body. Luke knows how important the brain is, the surgical hand is, right? Luke knows these things. He said you took away the key of knowledge. Why is the knowledge there? To point to the key that unlocks it, the door that unlocks it. It makes you think of John when Jesus says, I am the gate. All who enter in, right, come into a, basically a family pasture, right? This religion, this outside false appearance, this non-holy hypocrisy was not only keeping them from coming to Jesus and having Jesus deal with their hearts, It was blocking them and others. They were putting up all these facades so that Christ couldn't weigh their hearts because they said that they were fine already. It's like somebody that comes to a physician. What's one of the first things you do when you come to a doctor? You step on the what? It's like the time of reckoning, right? Everybody gets nervous. Oh, snap. I hope I lost five pounds. Man, oh, man. And what do they usually have you do so that you don't get a false weight? They make you take off your clothes, right? And in that situation, none of us wants clothes on because we don't want to see the scale go up, right? Non-holy, hypocritical, superficial religion that says, I'm right with God because I do it. It's like all these clothes that you have on, but you never get weighed for who you really are. And then what the Pharisees were doing was saying, hey, put on this garment. Do this thing. Tithe like us because we're perfect. And they were keeping their eyes blinded to what the whole law points to. And what is it? Who is it? Jesus Christ. The whole law points ironically to that we need to be naked before Jesus, have us weigh him and say, God, I need you. I can't keep these laws. 
I can't keep them one day. I can't keep them any days. I'll never be perfect. I'm flawed. That's when someone is weighed like that, then the doctor's like, we can help. I can help you. The great physician says, now we've weighed you. I can help you. So the hypocrisies we're about to read in the start of 12 is, is, is that self-righteous religion stacks on top of uh, an already spiritual blindness. It's like there's two layers of spiritual blindness that are hard to get through to actually weigh the heart. Let me compare it to this. At least the prostitute knows what she's doing. How many of y'all have ever known a prostitute? How many of you ever known inside that we can act like prostitutes? We can behave like prostitutes. But at least a prostitute, of which we've talked to on the streets. Me and my wife used to live in North Avenue in, 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 in Pulaski. I've never seen a prostitute that says, man, look how good I am. Yet, no, at least they're consistent. I'm doing broken things, I'm broken. That's just one layer. God can work with that. But a self-righteousness is like two layers. I'm broken, but ain't, ain't nobody going to see it. And you know where that hides the most? Church. We put on these appearances. Jesus cuts through it with all these woes. I don't care what you put on. I don't care what clothes you have on. Because once again, the Lord looks at the heart. He don't care what you put on. He doesn't care your accolades. He does not even care about your past seasons of victory. He's saying, where are you now? Where are you now? So I want to pause here. Once again, keeping in mind that in Luke 12, 34, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Maybe some of you all are like, man, yeah, my, my, my Christianity or me even being here this morning, or my walking with God, it's an appearance. I go to church. I do the duty. I take communion. I put on masks. Let me say this very boldly. Your actions don't matter if, they don't, if they're divorced from your heart. If you don't treasure and see Christ as your Savior, and you have not let him into your heart, then those are just treadmill actions that get you nowhere. Jesus says, man, take off the clothes. Let me weigh you on a scale. Let me, let me transform your heart. Then we can do some things. Then I can work in you. How many of y'all know this? How many of y'all testify to this? That when you're real with God, that he transforms your heart. So I want to tell the people who are hearing today, whether you find yourself self-religious, just doing church, or you find yourself broken coming today like, man, I need an answer. Jesus will deal with you gently if you're humble and you're broken and you step on that scale and let him really weigh you for who you are and not who you pretend to be, not who I pretend to be. That is the interactions where Christ is most gentle, most favorable in all the Gospels. His anger mostly comes out when we're pretenders, when we're fakers. So I want to stop here and just say this, look. You got a heart inside of you. We've established that. And the Pharisees desperately needed a savior. It was just harder for them to see. They had layers and layers of self-righteousness, right? But we can have those same layers, right? Or we can grow or put on those clothes. Even if we found salvation in Christ, we can put on those clothes again. And we can function in those old clothes. Christ has new clothes of grace and mercy 
for us to function in. But those can only be, be, be put on if we let them deal with the heart. And so real holiness and non-holy hypocrisy is what Jesus warns us about. In verse 12, he says, if you could put your heads down and, and, and read with me, this is the, the, the capstone or the punchline of this section. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people were gathered together, they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. God wants to know your inner life, and he wants to transform you from there. If anybody's hearing my words right now, I just want to call out to you, whether you're on the screen or here. If Christ has never entered in your heart, some people smirk at that line. Ask Jesus into your heart. I don't smirk at it because that's what Jesus does. Not your romantic heart, not your Sweetie's Day card heart, your real core of your life, your identity. And if you need a Savior for all the garbage in your heart, all the sin in your heart, call to him. Romans 10.9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is my Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead after he died, for you, for your sins, you will be saved. That's where Christ starts with all of us. Are you transformed? Not that you go to church or put on new clothes. And maybe at church, like today, you could hear about the Christ, right? So church is a beautiful thing. But it comes beautiful after you have a transformed heart. Then you're forgiven of sins. Christ came for the sick, as he said in another passage. Not for those that are well. Well, guess who's sick? Every single one of us. So if you do not have a, a, a moment or a season where you have said, man, Christ, I'm on the scales. I'm wicked. My heart is deceitful. It's full of sin. And it might be full of hypocrisy and church going and just putting on the clothes of religion. I need you to transform me in a supernatural sense. Well, then remember, the heart is a supernatural thing. And who has the supernatural reach to reach in there and transform you, clean you of your sin? It's Jesus Christ. His arms are the only ones that are long enough to go to the depths of your seas and deal with you in the heart. So where does that come from? Well, I believe that sometimes what's missed when we cry out to God for salvation is that we want to be saved from our sins, and that comes with it. But part of it is declaring Jesus is Lord, our greatest treasure, right? And so remember, when you call out to Jesus, remember that he is the treasure that died for you, the treasure that rose for you, the treasure that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so why does transformation come when we treasure Jesus? It's because he becomes the greatest thing that we value. And that's why we take on the name. Hey, we're disciples of Christ. Hey, I'm a little Christ. Because now Jesus' identity becomes, becomes all we need. His holiness becomes all we need. Now no longer do we have to perform like Pharisees. We could be as wicked as the prostitute and as wicked as the Pharisee, which, by the way, is all of us. And he makes you a new creation. Come, let him transform your heart. And maybe for those of us that have been following, just a side note, we never graduate from this place. If you feel yourself callous, remember your salvation. Work, 
Work out your salvation. That means remember your salvation in Christ. Remember, treasure him in your heart. Remember he saved you. And remember that, I, that identity didn't die. You may have grown callous to it, but you can remember him. You can treasure him. And it's going to awaken that heart that he transformed. All right? So don't delay it. All right, let's keep moving on. Okay. So the next section we go to is about uh, misguided identities. And so I'm going to continue to read here. Uh, 12, 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after, have, uh, after that have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you to fear. Fear him. Fear God who has, after he has killed, he has also the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Are not the one of them forgotten before God? And not one of them is forgotten before God, verse 7. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than the sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what you should, how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you should say. Okay, my summary point to this is, 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 is for Christians that are following Jesus right now. Stop fearing man. Stop fearing man. And I'm preaching to myself. Stop fearing man. Because the treasure of our heart can start to become, man, I, I want to look good. Or I don't want to be disruptive. Or I don't want to be different. Or I don't want to be mocked. Stop fearing man. Your identity is in Christ. I want to scream out to this generation, for those who are deconstructed and walking away, have we forgotten the living God is in the room? Have we forgotten Jesus Christ, the living, resurrected King, is coming back? Our walk matters. All the issues that are making us walk away from the authority of God or his authority over our life, they act like God is not there, like he's not a living being. And maybe those who claimed him never knew him, maybe. But for those of us that know him, be bold. Come out the woodwork. Show yourself to the culture. Be bold with your faith in Christ. What do you got? You're, the, you're a kid of the almighty king. Come on. Don't be afraid of this culture. Don't be afraid of the agendas that, that attack the values, not of us, but of Christ. And so there are values. Don't be afraid. What does he say here? Don't be afraid of those that can, they threaten to kill your body. They threaten to kill your reputation. They threaten to uh, uh, affect your nonprofit status. They threaten to alienate you versus family. I know all those things hurt, but remember who holds us, the almighty author of life. And he made you new. He, he went in your heart, and he made you a new creation in Christ. So don't get your identity mixed up. There is no adjective before being a disciple or follower of Jesus Christ. We talk about it all the time, uh, me and my friends. It's like you grow up, and it's like, man, I'm a Hispanic Christian. I'm a you know, black Christian. I'm a white Caucasian Christian. I'm a, I'm a, um, I'm a reformed theologian Christian. I'm a... All those things have their place in dialogues, in value, don't get me wrong. They do not take the place of who you are. 
They do not take the place of who I am. You think in heaven you're going to be waving flags higher than Christ? You won't. You won't. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the king. So let's start practicing that now. Amen? Come on. We're getting blinded by flags and false identities. Dialogues that matter. I'm not belittling them. Ethnicity is magnified, the beauty of it in Jesus Christ. Read Revelation. Read Ephesians. Read Galatians. I'm not belittling that. I'm saying don't get it twisted. It's not your chief identity. Your theology being at uh, arm's length away, I'm all reformed, I'm not Pentecostal. Man, get past your pride. Pray with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need each other. And guess what? If this happens, when they're really threatening our body, you think you're going to be dialoguing about, oh, man, my, my theology is different than his theology. No, you're going to be on your knees hugging each other, thankful for each other. Man, I count it a blessing more than last two years. God has checked my heart to love when I'm with the body of Christ. Do you love the bride of Christ? Do you love all the facets of the bride of Christ? Man, may this be seen in America right now because there's some issues that are clouding our identity, our unified, our global identity in Christ. Man, don't fear the culture. Don't fear how they try to put us against each other. Man, know who you are. Our identity is in Jesus Christ, so don't value misguided identities over identity in Jesus Christ. Got it? I'm preaching to myself. When you feel that fear, remind yourself, I'm in Christ first. My brother and sister's in Christ first. God is in the room. He's coming back, and it matters. I'm going to move on to the last section, overvalued inventory. Now, this is where we talk about uh, something that affects us all, materialism, being defined by what we own. Uh, do our possessions possess us, right? These are things that become idols in the heart and, and, and push out the treasure of Christ. So that's the framework for this, all right? Uh, 12, 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who may be judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against the covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of the rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For now I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. Let me put that in context. I will tear down my banks and build larger ones. I will tear down my accounts and build larger ones, right? That's the modern equivalent. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, everything I worked for, right? Verse 19. And I will say to my soul, this is key. Remember I said heart and soul, they're, they're, a lot of times they're interchanged. There's some distinctiveness. But it, what he's saying here, I will say to the innermost parts of who I am, right? This is kind of shocking. It's like the, you picture like the, the billionaire in his room is like looking in the mirror, talking to himself, right? He's so immersed in his world, his ego, his I this, I that, his iPhone, right? His eye mirror, that this is what he says to his soul. And I will say to my soul, soul, capital S, you have made ample goods laid up for you for many years. So relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
makes me think about the third section that a few weeks ago we were going through. The parable of the sower in that third category is so haunting to us, I would say, as Christians, to mature in Christ. It's a haunting third section that talks about you've been walking with Christ, maturing in Christ, you're growing, you're starting to maybe produce some fruit, but the things of the world start choking you out. And I don't know if you're a Christian and you read that, and it doesn't kind of scare you in a good way, give you a fear that maybe your heart's not in the right place. It does for me. Because, man, as you go on, man, the comfort of life, I want to move away from this hardship. I don't want to deal with this. It starts taking your treasure, your eyes off of the treasure of Jesus Christ, right? It's so insidious, right? It just intertwines, synchronistic, kind of intertwines. I don't want to be bold with the Lord. Man, I got hurt discipling somebody, so I don't want to open up my life to disciple again. Man, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time. I bet I arrive. It's the Moses striking the rock when he was already walking with God for years, right? And then this guy strikes the rock. It's, it's, we have feeble hearts, right, in every season of our life. We got to be aware of possessions becoming our identity, our treasure. We don't know if our life is going to be required of us tonight. That puts it in perspective, right? Oh, man, so many messages here. We overvalue our inventory. We misprioritize our goods, right? I mean, we're swimming in a culture like that. Your houses, your barns, your identity, your accounts, your likes, your marketing, your this, wherever you put value, it starts to define, it starts to drive you. How many churches driven, man, we got to boost the likes, we got to boost the views. It may be mixed with some good intentions, right? Post-pandemic, I, I work for a creative communication production ministry, and we talk about post-pandemic. It's funny to us that every church has become better producers than we are. We're like, man, post-pandemic, great use in production. But if our value is in reputation and likes, are we getting it wrong? Yeah, we are. If it's not impacting hearts, right? If our value, if we're a businessman, a businesswoman, is in our profit without generosity, it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact our faith, our walk, what we value. If we're so fearful of what people think about us, the fear of man is going to become our chief treasure. It's going to impact the Jesus that we display to the world, right? And so we see that God is pointing out in these three sections, hey, man, listen, I got to deal with your heart, right? And maybe it's hypocritical, non-holiness, uh, Pharisee-type religion that's crept in. I'm just going to do the duty, but I don't need to pray. I don't need to spend time with the Lord. I don't need to value the things of the body of Christ. I don't need to let God actually into my heart. I don't, I don't need all that. Let me just keep doing the duty because I got saved, and I got, man, I got this whole religious treadmill down, and Jesus is saying, wake up. Let me deal with your heart. Or maybe it's the misguided identities. Where we don't fear God and how he sees us, we fear man and how they see us. We fear society and how they see us and how they perceive us. Well, then we just have a temporary perspective. And we forgot the eternal God is looking at our heart. Or maybe, like we just covered, it's the overvalued, misguided, misprioritized inventory. Who you think God is going to be? Really impressed with how rich we get, how much we're liked, how popular we get? Do you think, he, do you think that, that matters? 
Well, if it did, man, Jesus failed his whole life. Because he was in the gutter, he was in the street, he was with the dusty people, he was with the misprioritized, uh, undervalued people, but he was pouring into hearts the whole time. So let's not forget discipleship. What has Paul said? My treasure is you. Where was that at, Pastor Bill? I think that's in uh, Thessalonians or Philippians. Can't recall right now. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to call out the pastor. <laughs> hey, we're all saints. We all know this word, right? Philippians 3, man, you are my treasure. What is he talking about? He's talking about people. He's talking about hearts. The thing that you boast in is in the Lord and, man, seeing people grow in Christ. The digital age doesn't change that. It could be tools to use. I use them every day. It's still about the heart of people. Our fruit is in people's lives. It's what God values. It's hearts that are in eternal people. What we treasure in our hearts, brothers and sisters in Christ, it dictates our image, our identity, and our inventory. You see, from salvation, from sin, and living in victorious sanctification, it starts and it's maintained by treasuring Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of the heart. Uh, just because of time, I want to jump down to 1230. Chapter 1230, and we're going to end with this. And I think this is what Luke is getting to. I think it's what weighs this whole middle section of the, the gospel narrative. It frames it. Verse 30, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, talking about the things of life, the, the clothes, the food, the, the everything you can think of, right, that, that becomes inventory of worth and value. But the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. How caring is that, right? Verse 31, instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For here it is, the heart of the issue. For where your treasure is, brother and sister in Christ, where your treasure is, Estelan, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. And it will dictate your choices, your feelings, your thoughts, your decisions, the trajectory of your life and your identity. Man, treasure Christ. When you treasure Christ in your heart, what does it do? Why treasure Jesus Christ? Man, because he is all in all. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Jesus satisfies you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus died for you and rose for you. Jesus is always with you and never fails you. Jesus is coming back from you. Jesus knows every hair on your head. He knows every hurt in your heart. Jesus is the master physician for your wounds. Jesus will give you mental wellness and heart wellness. Jesus knows how to work with you. He knows how to weigh you. He knows how to talk to you. He knows how to form community around you that you can benefit, that, 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 can, that can help you grow and you can also grow. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus does all of this. 
He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the author of life. Who made you? Jesus made you. So who knows how to deconstruct you and reconstruct you? Jesus. Jesus Christ knows the human heart. He knows your anatomy. He knows he's going to give you another body. He knows your brokenness. It goes on and on and on. Why value Jesus? Because then you will have a healthy heart. Then you will have abundant life. Amen? How many of you all know it? How many of y'all know it? While you're temporary in this world, better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your presence, better is one moment that I sit down to pray and listen and talk to you, Lord, than a million social media posts, right? Jesus is the wellspring of our life. And when you value him in your heart, and he is your treasure, those riches flow out. So be rich in God, not rich according to the world standards. Be identified in Jesus, not identified by the world's standards. Be saved by Jesus. Be transformed and holy in Jesus. And see what victory tastes like. See what it means to not be a slave of sin any longer. See what it means to to rejoice in his mercy and grace. The treasure will never fail you. The treasure, Jesus Christ, will never fail you. The treasure, Jesus Christ, if you value him, he will never fail you. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, you weigh on us, but you can heal us, God. You see our hearts. You see how needy they are. We're the Pharisee. We're the prostitute. We're the crowds trampling on each other, and we're the the ignorant disciples just following along the way. We're all of those things, but you're gentle with us. You also are, 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 are urgently uh, asking us, how is your heart? And so, Lord Jesus, I pray, would you weigh our heart today with our identity, our, our holiness, and our image, would our, the way we use things and possessions all be aligned by treasuring you? For God, it is our prayer that our treasure is Jesus Christ and that our heart would be there and it would follow you, Lord Jesus. So bring us love and joy. We look to you today, and you never fail us. In your name we pray, amen.